So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. Thank you folks for participating in that. Luke chapter 6. If you're new to us or visiting with us, we're going through the book of Luke right now. and We're in chapter 6. Last Sunday we talked about Jesus choosing from among His disciples 12 men that He designated as apostles. And so we're picking up after that in Luke 6 beginning in verse 20. Coming to a section here where Jesus is preaching to a multitude of His disciples. But there was also a great throng of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, it says. They'd all come to hear Him, but not all were disciples. Many had come to be healed of their diseases. Those that were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured by Jesus. And in verse 19 it says, All the multitude were trying to touch Him, for power was coming from Him and healing them all. All. And then verse 20 says, Jesus turned His gaze on His disciples and began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you immediately think that sounds like what? A, a beatitude. Sure, and you're right, because it is a beatitude, except it's not the more familiar account in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, but the less familiar account here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Now let me just take a moment to tell you that scholars debate back and forth as to whether this is the same occasion, the same Sermon on the Mount, that Matthew records in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, or is this a different sermon given on a different occasion? Now, you don't have to agree with me on this. This isn't a salvation issue. But I personally believe this was a totally different occasion than the one that Matthew speaks about. Now, why do I say that? Well, Matthew 5, verse 1 says, Jesus went up on the mountain. Whereas Luke 6, verse 17 says, Jesus descended and stood on a level place. Matthew chapter um, 5 verse 1 says Jesus sat down. Whereas Luke 6 17 says He stood. The places from which the crowd came are different in the two accounts. Also, Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount lists nine Beatitudes. Luke gives only four and with a lot of variation in the wording as well. Luke contains, uh, includes the antithesis of the four Beatitudes he gives. In other words, he also gives four woes. Matthew does not. If this is the same occasion, the Sermon on the Mount, then Luke omits the majority of the sermon that Matthew includes. A leper that was healed was healed after the sermon in Matthew 8, verse 2, whereas he was healed before this sermon in Luke 5, verse 12. Matthew has his call by Jesus from the tax collector's booth. He has his call from Jesus after the sermon. Luke has Matthew called by Jesus before this sermon. Now, is the material of the two sermons similar? Well, yes, it is. But that doesn't mean it's the same occasion and the same message. 
I can tell you as a preacher in the revivals that I have preached through the years, there's been more than once I've preached the same sermon at a different church. No. Yeah. Larry reminded me of the old definition of a revivalist, of an evangelist. A briefcase with seven sermons and a fast car, something like that, right? Yeah. You could say what you want in a revival because you knew that you weren't staying long, okay? Yeah. But no, I've preached the same sermon on more than one occasion to a different group to, on a different occasion. And so I believe Luke's record of this sermon by Jesus is a different occasion, a different message than Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were to dissect Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount along with Luke's record of this Sermon on the Plain, you'll notice that Matthew's Beatitudes are structured differently than Luke's Beatitudes. Matthew presents eight blessings. In contrast, Luke presents four blessings and four woes that are not included in Matthew. These four woes, again, are the antithesis, the, the opposite of the four blessings. And in that way, Luke emphasizes that the downtrodden will be blessed in the future as citizens of the kingdom. In contrast, the citizens of this world are already blessed with temporal blessings, and it's the only thing that they're going to be blessed with. Woe to them because they opt for the cheap satisfaction now instead of the greater spiritual blessings in the future. And I think a more significant difference, though, is that Luke phrases his Beatitudes not as spiritual conditions, but as physical conditions. For instance, Matthew begins the Beatitudes by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor. It's also true for those that hunger now and weep now and are rich and well-fed now and laugh now. So Luke words his beatitudes as physical conditions rather than the way Matthew does wording them as spiritual conditions. These four beatitudes that Luke gives us summarize what a citizen of the kingdom of Christ is. These summarize what you and I are to be, folks. Okay? Don't miss that. What you and I are to be, they deal with character and being. Because hear me now, Christianity is fundamentally being before it is doing. You understand that? Being before doing. What you are must precede what you do in order to please God. That which motivates and controls you determines whether what you do is acceptable to God or not. Fasting and praying and, and helping out the poor, those are all good in the eyes of God, only if they're motivated from a godly purpose. Being is more important than the doing. It, it comes first. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, that's the doing. But have not love, that's the being. It's worthless. If I give my body to be burned and give all I possess to the poor, the doing, but have not love, the being, profits me nothing. Christianity is fundamentally being before it is doing. So don't forget that. 
So let's take a look at these four Beatitudes, Luke 6. And in doing so, I want to jump back and forth a little bit. Luke gives us the four blessed statements in verses 20 through 23. Then he gives us the four woes in verses 24 through 26, the antithesis of the blessings, as I've said. And what I want to do is to examine the blessings and their woes, their parallel woes together. So we'll jump back and forth just a little bit. So notice verse 20. Turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That would have been like dropping an H-bomb on these people. That's totally the opposite of what they believed. You see, both Jews and Gentiles considered wealth as a sign of God's approval and God's blessing, and yet Jesus is teaching something different. Blessed are you if you're poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Now, poverty by itself is no virtue, just like wealth in itself is not necessarily a sin, but poverty may prove to be a blessing and that it might strip a man of self-reliance and make him totally dependent upon God. And that's a good thing. If your poverty, if your lack leads you to total dependence upon God, then that can be a real blessing. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, but Matthew and Luke are ultimately picturing the same kind of moral character. But notice the antithesis in verse 24, because there's another side to these blessing statements. And remembering, remember that we are seeing here a contrast between the citizens of God's kingdom and the citizens of the world. So what is the state of those in the world that reject citizenship in God's kingdom and reject the godly morality that God calls us to? What's their future? What will be their reward? Well, verse 24 tells us, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. You see, those that devote all their energies and talents to earning this world's riches may get them, but that's all they're going to get. Their wealth is going to be all the help and comfort and encouragement they'll get in this world. When a man of the world gets the riches of the world that he has pursued, God will mark his account paid in full. And if that's all they have, their future prospect is woe, because they'll be lost for all of eternity. I think one of the greatest examples of this comes right out of the scriptures from Luke the 16th chapter. You remember the story Jesus gave about the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man had everything you could ever ask for. But Lazarus, the beggar, covered with sores that the dogs would come and lick, he longed to be fed just from the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. They both died. The rich man lives up his eyes and soul in torment. Lazarus awakens in the bosom of Abraham in a place of comfort, paradise. The rich man looks across and sees Abraham and Lazarus, and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here, have him dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. And what did Abraham say in Luke 16, verse 25? 
Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And I think that's a great example of what Jesus is teaching in Luke 6, verse 20, Blessed are the poor. And verse 24, Woe to you who are rich. Now verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. You see, those that are poor of both this world's goods as well as being poor in spirit, they're going to be satisfied if they rely on God. How was it Matthew put it in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Yeah. Now those hungering simply after more material things are never going to be satisfied. Hunger or poverty without faith may lead a person to do the wrong things. Remember what Proverbs 30 verse 9 teaches, verses 8 and 9? Give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who's the Lord? That's what the rich of the world do. Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither riches nor poverty, but any kind of hunger that creates a need for God will be satisfied, if not here, then in heaven. Jesus said what in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and... Yeah, He's going to meet your needs. And prior to that, He gave example after example. Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow, sow or reap, but God provides for them. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't spin. They don't make their own clothes, and God clothes them with beauty. Aren't you more important than birds and flowers? If God takes care of them, won't He take care of you? Yes, absolutely. So blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Lazarus hungered, but he ended up satisfied. But the parallel woe or the antithesis is found in verse 25. Woe to you that are well fed now, for you'll be hungry. So woe to you that are full now. Woe to those that are satisfied with the fullness of this present world. This world's going to perish. You won't. And you've heard me say, everyone gets eternal life. It's up to you to determine where you're going to spend it. If you have only the perishable things of this world to satisfy you now, you will hunger in the next world like the rich man. If it's not truth and goodness and purity, peace, love, and God that satisfies you here and now, indeed you will hunger and suffer in eternity. Verse 21 also gives the third beatitude. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So those who are poor, hungry, and in sorrow, if they believe and do not give up, if they endure and are faithful, will have the power to laugh and rejoice even in the midst of oppressive circumstances because of their hope that in heaven circumstances are going to be different. Right? Thank you, Alan. Right? Yeah. 
That's the hope, the hope for a better life in perfect circumstances after this life is over. That's the unique heritage of the Christian. It has a motivating power for godliness in this life. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. What we're going through right now, as bad as it could ever be, it's not worth comparing to what awaits us. Wow. Think how bad things have gotten in our lifetime and still doesn't compare with how good it's going to be in eternity. There's something far better ahead of us and we can't afford to get off track and miss it. But the antithesis in verse 25, Woe to you that laugh now, because you're going to mourn and weep. One scholar put it this way, The laughter of the wicked will become the cries of the lost. And he's right. Now does the Bible condemn or prohibit Christian fun and laughter? No, absolutely not. Bible doesn't prohibit Christian fun and laughter, but neither does it condone foolishness or the sick, foul, crude humor at which most of mankind has laughed and that we see so much of in our world today. The wealthy and powerful that devote themselves to the enjoyment of this world and give not the slightest consideration or compassion to the poor and the oppressed, they're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And they may laugh now. But when the Lord returns and time has turned into eternity, they won't be laughing. They'll have nothing but woe like the rich man. The fourth beatitude in verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. You're blessed when men hate you on account of Jesus. The poor, they're usually oppressed simply because they're poor and they're powerless. But Jesus says oppression for his sake is a blessing. Now there's not much blessing involved in being oppressed for any other reason. But where is the blessedness in being hated for the sake of Christ? Well, Peter, the apostle, who suffered much for Christ's sake, tells us in his first epistle, in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Suffering for the sake of Christ can focus you upon the will of God to live a victorious life. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. When's the last time you rejoiced at suffering? And suffering for the sake of Christ. 
Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. The blessings of being hated and cast out and insulted and persecuted because of your faith in Jesus. So Jesus said that if you're persecuted for his sake, leap for joy. It ought to be quite clear that we're dealing with principles and practices of living that only apply to a Christian, to a converted person. To believe that these ways are profitable and joyous, that involves a total revolution of one's values. They take the accepted standards of our world and turn them upside down and inside out. Because you notice here, folks, the people that Jesus called happy and blessed the world would call wretched. And the people that Jesus calls wretched, the world would call happy and blessed. The antithesis of this fourth beatitude is in verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Now, of course, Christians are to strive for a good reputation among people, that they come into contact with. But what Jesus is talking about here is false flattery. False flattery. The true prophets of old, especially in the Old Testament, oftentimes were slandered because they told the truth. They were persecuted. Jeremiah was dumped into a cistern. Micaiah was imprisoned. Others, sometimes they were even killed. But the false prophets were flattered and praised by those who sought their favor because they would say what they thought the king or the people wanted to hear. Those who hate Christ and seek to ruin and slander his church are not going to flatter those of us that profess to be Christians unless we agree to compromise our integrity and our faithfulness. And we dare not do such a thing. Folks, if we are acceptable and popular with people that live according to the spirit, the spirit of this world, of this present evil age, then we may in fact belong to that evil age and share in its judgment. So we've got to be careful. Because a person that is persecuted because of Christ is truly alive. There's an old saying that even a dead dog can swim with the tide. Yeah, to swim against the tide, you've got to be alive and kicking. Being a yes man or yes woman of an ungodly culture means drifting along with the dead. So are you hated because of Christ? Have you been left out or excluded from something because of your faith in Christ? Have you suffered insult because of your faith in Christ? If so then you're blessed with special benefits of grace from Him. So let's wrap this together. What's the key to all this? 
What is it that Jesus is saying to you and me? I think this. If you set your heart and spend your energy to obtain obtain the things that the world values, you may get them. But that's all you'll get. But if, on the other hand, you set your heart and spend all your energy to be totally loyal to God and true to Christ, you may well run into all kinds of trouble and hot water. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Be cheerful and rejoice in that, because I've overcome the world. G.K. Chesterton one time, whose Christian principles constantly got him into hot water, once said, I like getting into hot water. It keeps you clean. So we come face to face with an internal choice that begins in childhood and never ends until life ends. And here it is. Are you going to take the easy way, which brings immediately, immediate pleasure and profit? Or will you take the hard way, which brings immediate toil and sometimes suffering? It's your choice. Will you focus on the pleasures and the profit of the, of the moment of this world? Or are you willing to look ahead and sacrifice them for the greater good? Will you concentrate on the world's rewards or are you going to concentrate on Christ? If you take the world's way, you've got to abandon the values of Christ. But if you take Christ's way, you have to abandon the values of the world. It's your choice. And listen, it's Jesus' teaching that the joy of heaven will amply compensate for the troubles upon this earth. Amply compensate. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For momentary light affliction, doesn't always seem light, is producing for us an external weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so the challenge of these Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel is are you going to be happy in the world's way or happy in Christ's way? Your choice. We come to a time of decision this morning. You have to choose. Even as Christians, we still have to take a look at our life and evaluate, am I living God's way? Or am I conforming to the world's way? The world's way won't work for eternity. God's way through Christ will. If you have decisions you need to make public today, we encourage you to make them. If you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything is prepared and God is waiting for you. You can step out and meet me down front as we stand and as we sing.